Good morning. Good to see you guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for joining us. All right, y'all, this morning we're heading back to the book of Romans. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's flip over to Romans 8. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 944, Romans 8. If you're using your app, awesome. Just go ahead and open it up, okay? Um, but we're going to Romans 8, and uh, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 23 through 28, but I'm going to read verses 17 through 28 um, so that we can have the context, because as we know, we're jumping into the middle of a paragraph, an, an ongoing developing thought, and so I want to remind you of where we've been and, uh, and so that you can kind of see where we're going. And so I'm going to be reading Romans 8. I'm actually going to start in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, happy Palm Sunday, y'all. This is the start of Holy Week, the most important week in human history. Uh, And on Palm Sunday, if you don't remember, this is the Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. It's called the triumphal entry because as he entered Jerusalem, the the people of the city came out to meet him and and, uh, they laid palm leaves on the ground in front of him as he rode into the city on the back of a colt. And um, that was like rolling out the red carpet, right? That was a, like, like for a, a premiere, right? It was a way of honoring the guest. It was like saying, this is the king, right? And, and so they're putting out the, the palm leaves and they're yelling, Hosanna, uh, which is a word that means um, save us, right? It is, it is both a declaration of praise and a petition for help, right? It's a declaration of praise saying, you're the king, you're the one who can help us. And hey, do it, <laughs> right? You have the authority exercised on our behalf. And so as they come out singing Hosanna and waving their palm leaves and, and um, singing him in this Palm Sunday um, began an interesting week, right? Palm Sunday is an interesting juxtaposition of joy and sorrow, of hope and frustration, of longing and sadness. Jesus knew as he rode into the city that by the end of the week, the same crowd that was singing his praise would be calling for his death. 
or silently standing by while others did. He knew that this coming Thursday would be his last day on earth with his disciples, that he would have his last supper, that he would spend the entire day and evening pouring himself out to his disciples to prepare them for what was coming. He knew that in the early hours of Friday, he would be betrayed and handed over, that he would be passed through a series of kangaroo courts until eventually he would be handed over to be scourged and crucified. So can you imagine his emotions as he rode into the city? Again, let's not dehumanize Jesus, right? Jesus was the Son of God, the eternal second person of the of the Trinity, co-equal with God in glory, power, and all the attributes of Godhood, but he became man and he was human and he felt human experience as we do. Can you imagine his experience as he rode into the city and he's riding on this colt and he's looking into the eyes of those that are singing his praise, those that are filled with longing for freedom and deliverance, but they want that longing, freedom, and deliverance on their terms. They want political deliverance. They want economic deliverance. They're not looking for spiritual deliverance. They're looking for Jesus to be the king they want while Jesus was coming to be the king they need. Can you imagine the conflicting emotions as he is hearing the proper praise being sung? for improper motives. The complexity of knowing that those who celebrated Him would also betray Him, even His disciples. He was living in that moment. That's why I believe this passage is so appropriate for Palm Sunday. The Romans 8 is so appropriate because He was living as He rode into the city the tension that's being described in Romans 8, right? This, that, that he was in that moment in the in-between time. He, he, and he was keenly aware that he was, he was in the time of the dying of the age of Adam, but the birth of the age of the last Adam, the, the dying of the kingdom of man and the birth of the kingdom of the son of man. That, that, that there was this this overlapping of the ages that we now live in, right? He, he was living in the tension of the sorrow and the joy of the longing. And it was a time of waiting, yearning, and suffering. Romans 12.2 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Now we know that for the joy that was set before him, he endured way more than the cross. Now the cross was the pinnacle of his suffering. The cross was the pinnacle of what he endured, but, but he endured everything, every day. Because every day as he met with his disciples, he was meeting with people who followed him and loved him, who were trying to lead him and hijack him. <laughs> they were people who were coming into the kingdom because they longed for the kingdom, but they were trying to recreate the kingdom of their image instead of yielding willingly to be recreated into the image of, of the Son of Man. They, that, that even his friends didn't know how to be his friends. Even his followers didn't know how to follow, right? He, he endured 
Can you imagine the tension in his heart as he rode into that city being praised for the king that he truly was, knowing that every single person in that crowd would betray him, even his disciples? Now, here's the thing I want you to catch, y'all. Jesus was never powerless, right? John 1 tells us that all that was made was made through him. He's the creator of all things. He is the word of God, the very expression of God, the power of God. And even as he rode into that city, he had all that power. He never was powerless, but he did choose to be weak. Jesus embraced weakness. The weakness and the frailty of his humanity. The weakness of limited power. The weakness of vulnerability. The weakness of being able to be betrayed. The weakness of being able to be rejected. The weakness of being able to be killed. He embraced his weakness and his weakness became his strength as he allowed himself to be carried along, not in his will for his father, but his father's will for him. Unlike his followers, he didn't try to hijack his father's plan for his life and turn it into his plan for his life. He yielded himself to the mission of the father and for the joy that was set before him endured the suffering. So our passage has a lot to say about weakness. Our passage has a lot to say about suffering. And if you think we've said a lot about suffering so far, um, yeah, it's going to get better, right? The whole end of this chapter where it's all about, you know, we are more than conquerors in Christ, which is an incredible proclamation over us. The very next sentence is, even though we are led like lambs to the slaughter. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of suffering in the backdrop. This, this chapter of triumph is the juxtaposition of the suffering of this age with the taste of the glory of the age to come, right? But, but while there's so much suffering in this chapter, suffering is not the focus. Hope is. The focus of this chapter isn't on the pain. It's on the anticipation. It's not on the suffering It's on the longing. It's about hope. It's about the glory that will eclipse all of the mess. And it's because of that, that as we read about the groaning, the groaning of creation, the groaning of us, the groaning of the Spirit, it's not despair. It's it's not that there isn't anger in it at times, but it's not anger. It's not that there isn't frustration in it at times, but it's not frustration. It is an eager yearning for what is to come. The groaning being described in this chapter is not the groaning of despair of those who have been swallowed by their pain. It is the groaning of anticipation of those who are longing to be delivered from it. Now, here's the thing, y'all. The more we understand how good our future is, the more we're going to groan in anticipation of it. Now, last week we saw that the creation groans in anticipation for the revealing of the sons of God, right? We looked at the first uh, kind of chorus of groaning, the groaning of creation, that, that, that creation can't be what it was created to be uh, until the stewards of creation are once again seated on the throne of glory. 
Creation simply cannot function like it was designed to function unless the stewards of creation are in their proper position, exercising their authority and their power for the good of creation and the glory of God. And so as a result, creation is yearning under the present futility, yearning and groaning and aching for us to be restored to our glory, that we might have the glory as image bearers of God, um, those who have been recreated in the image of Christ. Creation groans, waiting. And verse 23 brings the believer into that chorus. So let's take a look at verse 23, what we're going to pick up this morning. And not only the creation groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. The first fruits, those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown. Kind of an interesting way of describing the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of the Spirit. So far in Romans 8, what we've seen is that uh, all believers are given the Spirit, right? That if you've believed in Jesus, if you've trusted in Christ, you You recognize that in his death, you see your death, and in his resurrection, you see the gift of your life, and you trust him, and you receive that gift of grace. The Spirit of God comes in and dwells you, right? You have the Spirit in you, and because you have the Spirit in you, you are actually in the realm of the Spirit. You are actually, you have a new standing before God, right? A completely new standing in which you are justified. You you stand in the Spirit, justified. You stand in grace. Because the Spirit is in you, you are in grace. The Spirit, and the Spirit works in you. He has a job to do in the, in the life of the believer. He is continually at work reorienting our disoriented desires, right? Our desires that are trying to find the fullness of life apart from God, in competition with God, in things that aren't God. The Spirit is, is awakening us to the shalom of God, the peace of God, the presence of God, so that we can find our security and our significance our need for, for approval, um, our desire for rest. We can, we can find those deep needs met in our relationship with God instead of trying to, to continually pursue to have those needs met in the things God created, right? And so he's at work reorienting our disoriented desires. One of the most important ministries of the Spirit during this season is that while he's doing that, he is continually provoking us wooing us, calling us to relate to God as our Father. Something that's very unintuitive for us, something that feels very dangerous in many ways. The Spirit is at work so that we will almost involuntarily cry out, Abba, Father, Dad, right? That we'll approach God not not as this holy being before whom we must measure up to be accepted, but we will come to him as a father who loves us, who invites us, who embraces us, not because we've earned it, but because Christ has earned it on our behalf, right? The Spirit is at work awakening that kind of familiar intimacy with God that we will approach him as Abba, Father. So the Spirit is at work changing us and calling us and wooing us and and, and doing all of these things, right? And while he's doing that, he he is bringing comfort to us in our pain. But you need to recognize that while he brings comfort to us in our pain, his very presence also increases our pain, right? Because there are good kinds of pain. Um, Because he meets us in the brokenness, 
But as he brings the salve of his love to our woundedness, it awakens a deeper desire for more. And that is both joyful and painful. I don't know if you've ever had a hope so strong that you could never stop thinking about it. It consumed you. It consumed your thoughts. Every time you relaxed, you found yourself in in your imagination running back to it. And it was something that filled you with joy and it was something that filled you with the pain of longing and yearning and wanting. That's what the Spirit does. He comforts us in our brokenness, but He awakens within us a greater appetite. That's why He's called the first fruits of the Spirit. See, the first fruits, when, when Paul refers to them as first fruits, he's referring to the Old Testament um, sacrifice system where when you harvested your field, you would bring the first fruits of that first offering to God. You would bring the best first, right? And it was the promise of a greater offering when the full harvest came in. So a first fruits offering was in many ways a down payment. The first fruits offering was, was um, just to, to, in many ways, like, like an appetizer, to awaken a greater appetite, right? Not, not like an Applebee's appetizer that destroys your appetite, right? Both because it's quality, right? Not that great. But definitely because of its quantity, right? There's so much there. By the time you get your food, you're like, I am not hungry and I won't be for a week, right? A good appetizer awakens your appetite. If you've ever been to a quality restaurant, and I'm not slamming Applebee's, but you've been to a place where they actually know how to pair the food, the appetizer actually prepares the palate for the meal. It actually awakens your hunger. It doesn't satiate it. That's what the first fruit of the spirits does. He is at work in your life to bring comfort to your woundedness, but as he brings that comfort, he awakens within you a hunger, a yearning, a longing for more. For more of what right now you're only getting a taste. And as a result, we who have the Spirit groan inwardly as we await our adoption as sons. That groaning inwardly is that expression of longing. That groaning of of. of pain and hope of anticipation we groan and we groan because we're waiting for our adoption as sons now remember when when paul uses this gendered language sons not all languages use gendered language in the same way and when um, the new testament writers use the gendered language of sons they're not saying god's going to change our gender (laughs) um what he's saying is that there, in this old world, the ancient Near East, a son had specific rights and privileges in the family. And all of us, regardless of our gender, will sit in that position of authority. All of us will have that position of sonship. We will sit in that position of honor, authority, um, exercising our regal dominion, right? We are yearning for our adoption as sons. And, and some of you are like, Steve, come on, man. I thought we were already as adopted as sons, right? That's what we learned earlier in, in Romans 8. We're celebrating. That was part of the blessing of the Father. I've already been adopted. In fact, the Spirit of God is at work in my life right now convincing me of that adoption. 
Because I'm like that kid who has attachment disorder and I have a really hard time God lo- believing God loves me. I have a really hard time believing that this is my forever family. I have a really hard time believing that, that God is unconditionally, unwaveringly committed to my good, loving me regardless of how I behave or how I, or I misbehave, right? I struggle with that and the Spirit is continually convincing me in such a way that I naturally start calling out, Abba, Father. Like, like you know you're getting convinced when instead of running from your father in your time of need, you start running toward your father. And you're not even thinking about what to call him. You're just saying, Abba, I need you, Abba, right? That's when you're starting to believe that he actually is your father. If we've already been adopted, why are we waiting for our adoption? Paul tells us, right? He says specifically, What he means when he says that we're waiting for our adoption, he says that we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We've been adopted, but we have not yet fully experienced our adoption. We've been blessed with all the blessings of Christ in heavenly heavenly places. That's what um, Ephesians 1 tells us, right? But we're not yet experiencing all the blessings we've been blessed with. We're only experiencing a tiny fragment of the blessing that is our right in Christ. And we yearn for the redemption of our bodies because that will be a manifestation of the blessing that brings us into its full experience. Back in verse 11, we saw that the culmination of the Father's blessing was the future resurrection of our bodies. Right? That because the Spirit is in us, the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies. That, that the same Spirit who knit back together the molecules and the amino acids of the body of Christ will also knit ours back together. The same Spirit who could take a dead, wounded, broken battered body and raise it to life. Lift it out of the the indignity of death and restore it to the glory of life. That same Spirit will do it for you too. Your body will be raised from the dead. But what's so beautiful about this is that it's not just deliverance from physical death. It's deliverance into genuine freedom. The resurrection isn't just about about you being delivered from death back into this current life. The resurrection is about you being delivered from death and into the life that you can't yet live because your body still carries within it the disordered desires and brokenness of rebellion that we inherited from our first parents. In the resurrection, that will be washed away, cleansed. Paul says that we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. That word is loaded, right? Redemption. It was a word that was used in the ancient world of um, the market of slavery. And, and in the ancient world, remember that people could become bond slaves when they entered into debt. So if you made some bad financial decisions, if you did some things, if you, if you, you know, took out a, a lien or whatever and you found yourself with a debt you couldn't pay, you could become a bond servant, which meant that you would become a servant or a slave in a house in order to pay off that debt. And once the debt was paid, you'd be set free. But you could also be set free if somebody stepped in and paid the redemption price. If somebody paid that debt 
on your behalf. You could be set free. And that's what Paul is describing here, that we are waiting the redemption of our bodies. That, that and, and, and the way this, this is, is, is kind of coming across here is, is we're waiting for the body to be delivered from its present bondage. We still have our disordered desires. We, we still carry in us the brokenness of sin. We, we're still prone to sickness and weakness, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. That's no longer both. I said both. That's all three things, right? The, the body is, is broken. Listen, when we are raised, we will be raised to freedom. You'll no longer have disordered desires. Your deepest desires for significance, for approval, for, 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 for um, comfort and security be met in your relationship with God. You will be able to pursue every desire of your heart. Every impulse. Every impulse toward productivity. Every impulse toward rest. Every curious impulse to explore, to dismantle, or to build. You will be able to pursue every impulse of your heart because you will no longer be enslaved to disordered desires. The world will be your playground. The world will be your kingdom. You will be able to love and relate, to laugh, to build, to explore, to imagine, to create, to rest, to delight in absolute freedom. You'll be freed from that inner critic that continually tears you down and compares you unfavorably to everyone and everything. You'll be freed from the conflicting desires of your heart that both want to follow God and rebel against God. You will be freed from from the doubt of wondering whether or not you're worthy. You will be free. The redemption of your body is the deliverance of your entire existence into the freedom of of the kingdom. There will be no disordered desires. There will be no sickness. There will be no fear of death. Instead of living every single day in fear of the encroaching shadow, you will live every single day running headlong toward life. Listen, y'all, the glory that is coming is so great. It cannot be compared to the suffering. It is so great, it will swallow the groaning. Listen, the more deeply that we believe in the resurrection, and I know we're believers, right? Those of you who are believers, you're like, yeah, dude, I totally believe, right? That's, that's something that I... I when I believed in Jesus, I signed, you know, I'm in, I get it, right? But, but come on, um, we believe and we don't believe, right? That's why Thomas is such a gift to us, right? When he looked at Jesus and he's like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We're growing in our belief. We're growing in our faith. And the more we believe, 
this truth about the resurrection, the more it ignites our imagination, the more it actually hijacks our hope, the more glorious it becomes to us, the more we will groan in anticipation of it. As the hope increases, the longing will increase with it. As the comfort of the glory comes in and comforts our woundedness, the discomfort of the longing will grow and we will find ourselves less and less content in this world. With the riches of this world, with the success of this world, with the good things of this world, the appetizers will simply awaken a deeper and more profound appetite for the reality. The more firmly we set our hope on the resurrection, the more joy we'll feel, but also the more we will groan in anticipation. And there are some people like, Steve, that, that sounds horrible. I think I'll just skip that. Right? You're saying that if I believe this stuff, it's going to make my discomfort greater. I'll just skip that. Yeah, the alternative's worse. Because um, the alternative is to reject hope. And some of you learn this as a childhood strategy. I won't hope because if I don't hope, I can't be disappointed. As if somehow that protected you. But when you don't hope, you die. It not only deadens the disappointment, it deadens the joy. It not only deadens the bad stuff, it puts to death the good stuff. Because that's despair. And the black hole of despair destroys everything that enters into it. We were created for hope. And we can't live without it. And yes, hope will bring us discomfort. Yes, hope will bring us pain. Yes, the longing will awaken within us a restless hunger for something that we can't yet have. But you know what it does is it fills our vision with the glory on the other side of the suffering. And it energizes us for the struggle. Verse 24, Paul goes on. For in this hope we were saved. Pause there. For in this hope we were saved. What hope? The hope of the redemption of our bodies. The hope of our resurrection. The hope of being set free into what we were created to be. You know, a lot of times when we think about salvation, we think about being saved from our sins. We think about it in terms of a negative. I was saved from my guilt. I was delivered from my sins. I was, I was delivered from the debt I couldn't pay, right? But the goal of salvation wasn't the deliverance. The deliverance was the method that led you to the end, right? We don't want to mistake the means for the end. What is the end? The end isn't simply a negative, a removal of sin. It is a positive, the giving of life. This is the hope in which we were saved. The hope of freedom. The hope not only of being cleansed, but restored. The hope of not just being forgiven, but recreated and set free in that creation. In this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? (laughs) If you got it, you stop hoping for it. 
Not because it's not worthy of hope, but because you're actually experiencing it. Hope is the longing for what has not yet arrived, right? We live in the age of anticipation. This is not just the dying of the age of man. It is the birth of the age of the Son of Man. And so we hope, right? We long. And what I want you to see is that that is, in fact, the appropriate thing to do. What, how do we honor God in a broken world? When, when we read about the devastation that is around us, when we read about nations rising up against nations, people abusing their power, both, both on a personal level, but on a corporate level, on a national level, politically, militarily, when we see people exercising power that was entrusted to them by God, to be used for the fullness and the flourishing of human life. It's being used to destroy human life. What is the appropriate response? Despair? Hope. Listen, we honor God by lamenting the brokenness of this world. Because when we lament the brokenness of this world, we declare our faith that He is a good and better God. That the kingdom to come is better than the kingdom that is. We are actually wearing the glory of our sonship when we lament the brokenness because we are declaring that it isn't the way it's supposed to be. That we see the glory of God and this isn't it. And we are yearning and longing and waiting. It is the regal, noble activity of the children of God to lament in hope. Verse 25, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. I love that Paul has so much faith in us. Right? We wait for it with patience. Really? I don't feel very patient. I don't know about you. I get really impatient. Like, like, the worse it gets, the more impatient I become. Like, I, I just get kind of whiny. I, you know? Like, some, God, just make us stop. Come on. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Like, now, right? We get impatient. I get, I get distracted. Like, sometimes the, the yearning becomes so heavy that I'll distract myself from it. Now, I can't blame God for that. It's not that the, the weight is too heavy, but in my disordered desires, there are times that I find release from the struggle by being distracted by tuning in Netflix instead of tuning into the spirit by, by chasing something that will um, give me temporary pleasure and distract me from the deep and painful suffering right but Paul says he's, this isn't a command Paul doesn't say wait for it with patience it's not a question he's not saying will you wait for it with patience it's a declaration we wait for it with patience right listen even when you don't feel patient you're being patient you know why because you don't have a choice that's waiting you can't speed it up you can't change the plan of God you have to adjust yourself to it I have, over the years, had the great privilege of passing a number of kidney stones. Uh, It's my gift. It's a special talent. I have 
kidney stones in both kidneys and, and learned decades ago what happens when I get dehydrated. They pop out. And um, I don't know whether it's a, a testimony of, of heroism or a plaque of stupidity, but I can tell you that I have preached through the passing of a kidney stone, right? I, I literally don't know whether that was just stupid or what, but you know what you do when you have a kidney stone that's passing? You wait. There's nothing else you can do. Like, you can take some painkillers, which are super helpful. But even with painkillers, man, on the bad ones, you just wait. And you wait patiently, even when you don't feel patient, because you have no choice. The greater the pain, the greater the need for patience. You know what's funny is is that it's in the waiting that we discover patience. We don't discover patience and then find the strength to wait. We find the strength of patience in the waiting. It is the waiting itself that delivers us into a greater experience of patience as we, in the pain, turn to God repeatedly instead of away from God. As we rediscover our helplessness over and over and over and bring that helplessness to God. When we bring our weakness to God, when we bring our need to God, we grow in patience. Patience isn't something we grow for God. Patience is something God grows in us. And there is nothing that grows patience other than waiting. So we wait. Listen, in those moments when we are bent over in the pain, curled up in the fetal position, and the present, it seems so broken, it's overwhelming, and the betrayal, the hurt, the abandonment, the frustration, the weakness, the helplessness, the... it's in those moments when we are begging for deliverance. When we've gone beyond groaning and at the heart is still just a deeper, more profound groan when we don't even have words left. And it's in those moments when we feel most isolated in our pain that we discover that we're not alone. Verse 26, Paul goes on, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When we discover just how weak we are, and we don't want to discover it, we hate to discover it because we hate to be weak. Weakness is vulnerability, and vulnerability means we get hurt. So we hate to be weak. We hate to be helpless. It doesn't change the reality that we are. We just hate to see it. The brokenness of this world reveals to us what we don't want to see. The brokenness of this world has a way of, of forcing us to see what we don't want to see, that we are weak and helpless. And it's in those moments of hurting and longing that we discover that the Spirit 
is suffering with us. It's not just creation that groans. And it's not just us that groans with creation. It is God Himself and the person of the Spirit groaning along with us. We groan. This chorus of groaning in the face of the brokenness of this world. This groaning. Lament of longing for deliverance into the glory that will be revealed to us. And the Spirit's groaning, man, it's a unique ministry of the Spirit. He is groaning with words that are too deep for words. He's uttering things in a language that language can't capture. Um, I I'm sure you know this, right? We already know this. We know that there are things that are absolutely true, that are so profound that they can't be put into words. That in fact, when we try to put these truths into words, we minimize the truths we try to describe and explain. This is the great struggle of philosophy. The limitation of language. There are things that are profoundly and deeply true that we know to be true, that we experience the truth of, that are in their own ways too deep for words. Not all things that are true have to be or even can be expressed in words. If you've ever experienced a piece of art <clears throat> in such a way that you got lost in it, or potentially an indescribable scene of nature, a moment of beauty, transcendent beauty in nature, you can't really describe it. You can't put it in words. But there's something that causes you in that moment Maybe it's music. And I'm not just talking about the emotional response. Music plays on our emotions, works with our emotions. And I'm not just talking about that, that emotional response. There are times when music can connect with us in a way that it causes us to not simply respond emotionally, but sit and experience something that's beyond the music. Something that is true. Profound and transcendent. For me, it's most often happened in stories. I'm a story guy, a literature guy, and I love, I love true fiction, if you know what I mean. So there are stories that are fiction. They're just made up. But they're told in such a way that they connect with deep and profound underlying truths of the human condition and the reality of the world. In such a way that when you read those stories, they stir you so deeply, they move you so profoundly, that the experience goes well beyond the story itself. And it echoes within you the deeper truths that you know permeate all of reality. If you know that, then you know that all meaningful communication can't be put into words. There are things that simply cannot be put into words. And, and, and of course, what I'm describing are, are, are mere shadows of the reality. The Spirit is fully immersed in this reality and He communicates with this deep, unspoken language of love and holiness and beauty and justice. It is full of meaning, so full of meaning that it can't even be codified in human language. And as he groans with groans too deep for words, 
It ministers to us, even as he communicates for us. Verse 27, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind, knows the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So as the Spirit comes and groans along with our groans and, and echoes our pain. And, and He translates it. He takes our prayer and He translates it into the true prayer that we intend to pray. Because we don't know how to pray as we ought. We don't know what to pray for. We don't know how to pray as we ought. And there are times we know it, like there are times that are so profoundly messed up that we don't even know how to pray. We just come to God and we're like, I don't even know. (laughs) And you need the Spirit to intercede for you in those moments, but you need to realize that even when you think you know know how to pray, you don't know how to pray. Even when you think you know what to ask for, you don't know what to ask for. Because we come even in prayer, filled with disordered desires, trying to hijack the plan of God for the good of my plan for God. Like I come up with all kinds of requests that I am convinced are for the glory of God and for my good that are really about my kingdom come and not His. And what's incredibly beautiful is that when we pray, the Spirit translates our prayers into the will of God. I love that. We don't have to be afraid of praying. We don't have to be afraid of praying the wrong thing. We don't have to be afraid of asking for the wrong. We don't have to be afraid if all we're showing up with is overwhelming emotion that can't even be put into words. Because the Spirit of God translates all of that into the will of God. When I first read this, I mean, ages and ages and ages ago, I just kind of had this picture in my head, and it's just never left me, that, that it's kind of like where I, when I pray, I'm sending this message to God, and, and on the way, the Spirit translates it, so that once it arrives, it says the right thing. And he's like, oh yeah, perfect, okay, yeah, I'll do that, right? And that's really good news. That's really good news, because I don't know what to pray for. I don't know how to pray as I ought. Tim Keller said um, that if God answered half our prayers as we prayed them, God would double our troubles. He also said, if we knew everything God knew, we'd pray for exactly what God gives. The Spirit translates our groaning into God's language and into God's will. And the Father always hears the prayers of the Spirit. And he always answers them. Because the Spirit is always praying in union with the will of the Father, and the Father is always pleased to carry out the will of the Spirit. Your prayers never go unanswered. Your groanings never go unheard. You are never alone in your pain. Because the Spirit inhabits your pain. Your Spirit inhabits your groaning. And ministers to you even while He intercedes for you. And the Spirit's prayers are always answered.
That's great news. Verse 28 tells us why. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. All right, we're going to get into this verse way more in depth next week. Man, what a great passage for Easter Sunday. But we'll get into that more next week. This morning, I'm just going to dip my toe into the water because I want you to see what drives our hope, right? Now, this verse, God works all things together for good for those who love God. Um, it's not saying that everything that happens is good. Not everything that's happened to you is good. Not everything you've done to others is good. It's, it's also not saying that everything that happens invariably inclines toward good, which is, to me, from a philosophical perspective, one of the most confusing, confusing things about secular humanism and evolutionary theory, this idea that everything seems to just stumble toward life. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that things by their nature just kind of gravitate toward good. No. They don't. What this is saying is that there is a God who is over all things. A God who is infinitely powerful and infinitely good. And as a result, He can work all things, even evil things. Even things that, are, that, are, that He hates. Even painful things together for our good. This is why we have hope. Because we have a God who will tell a better story for our lives than we would tell for ourselves. We have a God who isn't trapped in the story and isn't in the confines of the story we're telling. He's a God who's above the story and is determined to tell a better story because He loves us. Because of that, we groan. Because of that, we groan. And our groaning is a leaning in. Christians of all people should be leaning in and looking forward. We shouldn't live our lives on our heels. Afraid. Pulling back. We have a forward-looking hope, a forward-looking faith that causes us to lean with anticipation. Creation leans. The Spirit leans. And we lean together toward the revealing of the glory of the sons of God, the redemption of our bodies, the recreation of all things. Because even though we walk through suffering now, even though we live in the suffering of this current age, we know that the suffering of this current age cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. So as we move toward our time of response, um, I'm just going to leave you with a few questions, some thoughts. We're going to create some space for you to pray and do some business with God. Um, Really just ask you, what weakness is an invitation for you to groan today?
what weakness. Now remember, we tend to, to hate our weakness. We tend to run from our weakness. We try to not see our weakness, to hide our weakness. Instead of reacting to it, running from it, denying it, how do we move toward it? With the hope of the gospel. What weakness is your invitation to groan today, to lament today? Is it your weakness in the face of the suffering of the world? Are you overwhelmed by the misuse of political and military power nationally and internationally for the abuse and injustice? Are you frustrated with the corruption inside evangelicalism itself with how messed up the American church has become? Are you, are you suffering with and groaning under the economic instability of the world that, that whether it's on an international scale, where there are those who have so much that they throw away their food and there are those who have so little they can't eat the food they'll never see? Or your own financial instability, that you are unable to provide for those that you love, protect those things that you need to protect, that that, that your own financial instability is making you vulnerable and weak. Is Is it sin? A besetting sin. Whether it's a hidden lust or a shrine of unforgiveness in your heart. Is there a weakness? Every weakness is an invitation to groan. You're like, Steve, right? what? Even sin? Like, like I'm supposed to just like, yeah. <laughs> That's how this works, y'all. All we have to offer God is our need. And our greatest enemy is pretending to be strong when we are, in fact, absolutely weak. Embrace your weakness and groan. Bring it to God in lament. Lift it to God. Open that need. Open that shame. Open that fear. Open it. Because in the groaning, you'll find You are not alone. What's amazing is that as you lean into grace with your groaning, you will find that you get a greater foretaste of the freedom to come. As you lean into grace, you are never left unchanged by grace. All right, let me pray for us. Put some questions on the screen. Give us some space and time to do some business with God. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you don't despise our weakness as much as we despise it ourselves. You're not repulsed by our need like we are repulsed. You you do not reject us even though we are so tempted to reject ourselves. Lord, give us the courage to show up weak 
to step out of the bushes we want to hide behind, to take off the fig leaves that we want to pretend to actually protect us, hide us, dignify us, to come in our absolute need to be seen, known, and loved. And in that shared space of lament over the brokenness to discover the dignity that is ours in grace and to awaken a deeper and more profound appetite for the revealing of that glory. Guys, take a few minutes and pray. Put some questions up on the screen. We'll share communion in a moment.